Hello and welcome to the Working Man's Football Club. It's a little quarantine project I've started. And living in Australia, it's hard to keep up sometimes with all the football there is, given there's so much available to us all. I'm Danny, by the way, and welcome to the show. So whilst I've been missing the football, I'm sure we all have, it's been nice to catch up on a few football documentaries and take a trip down memory lane. And after doing this for a few weeks alone, it reminds you the game's at its best when it's with fans, when you're sharing the roller coaster of emotions with your mates and your family. First, in this indefinite series, is Australia's first international on English soil. It was aired by the Socceroos midweek here. Living in one country and being from another, it seemed a good place to start, England versus Australia. A friend of mine from the UK, Lee, he made the same journey as me a couple of years ago, moving over here. Monday mornings in the office back in Manchester would always include a wrap-up of the weekend's action. So Lee joins me, one of my old work colleagues, as we head back to Upton Park 17 years ago. Whilst the lockdown still allows us to get out for a takeaway coffee and a, a walk into the park or down the beach in Australia, it's obviously impacting us in different ways. For me, it's been a time to relax, but also a time to get stuck into something like this. And I'm lucky someone has jumped on board, so big thanks Lee, uh, as it's been an alternative social experience in an isolating, and let's face it, sometimes a lonely time for all of us. I'm hoping to do a few more of these across the next few weeks and the name, the Working Man's Football Club, is simply a nod, nod of the hat to where this all starts, talking about a football game with a with a mate through work who outside of that now is of course a good friend. And of course to the working class heritage of the game itself. So I'm hoping females who I've never worked with will be joining us soon too. Anyway, time to get on with the game. The kits, the hairstyle, the chants, Football's changed massively in the last 16 years. It goes to show us 16, 17 years. Uh, but here it is, uh, mine and Lee's take on England 1, Australia 3. Right, England, Australia, 2003. Where, where, where did you watch this game? Bloody hell, back in 2003. Did you not pick a game I'd remember? I, I don't think I watched it because back then, these midweek friendlies were on Sky and we didn't have Sky at home. So the only way I would see it is if my dad picked me up and took me to the pub so I could drink in the pub in the week. Or you'd have to hope that one of your mate's dads would allow you into their house, otherwise your mates were watching it and you weren't. So I actually don't think I watched it. Yeah, because it was two. So it was just after the two thousand and two World Cup. It was the season after, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And one thing that came to mind with it as well was, at this point, Beckham's. He's five years on from. I'm just trying to think. You know, the statue would have been held in. He's five years on from France ninety eight, and yeah. you know he's got the redemption penalty's been taken against Argentina, uh, in in yeah. Japan. I'm just thinking, you know, and you look at his hair and he still looks so moppy and celebrity-like, <laughs> but he really was the talisman then, wasn't he? He, he was, he was the captain. Um, how long, I, I was trying to think then, how long had um, 
had uh, Sven been in charge? Did Sven take over before 2002 World Cup? I, I think he did because Keegan resigned after the last game at Wembley, didn't he? 2000. So Sven yeah. would have taken us to to the Far East. But he must have took us to that. Then he failed at Portugal, and then his last one was uh, Germany. Yeah, that's right. And then um, McLaren gave it a go, and then Capello came in. Yeah. Okay. So this game, what what month was it? Do you remember? February. So it's a, it's a cold, maybe Tuesday night. And the question was, you know, but can Harry Kuehl do it on a cold Tuesday night at Upton Park? I, th- I think <laughs> we find out he can. So, yeah, it was it was yeah. midweek, and it was at that time as well where they're still rotating the games around the venues because Wembley's yeah. in construction, and, of course, they're not going to play England internationals in Cardiff. So, yeah. I think, looking back, you know, West Ham, for me, really established Premier League club and grounds were still grounds in the main then. You know, Arsenal hadn't moved into the Emirates at this point. City were about to move into and were were renovating the the City Manchester Stadium after the Commonwealth Games. But that was the the bar of a ground at that time, you know, four sides and... You would have had, you would have had. So in, because don't forget, they probably played it in about three... I mean, they know they went round the grounds, but they probably played it in three main areas, wouldn't they? And they played it down south, so that's London. And like you said, unless they're going to Highbury, and nobody, like, Arsenal liked Highbury, but it wasn't... Upton Park was probably better. Yep. Uh, then you have the Midlands, so that would have been Aston Villa. Villa Park, yeah. Leeds would have been the other one if you'd have gone to that side of... Uh, the north. We played Holland, and then, and then it would have been Old Trafford. I do remember. I remember. Anfield, did they? Oh yeah, we beat on a Saturday afternoon at Anfield. I think Finland in either a qualifier or a friendly. Chris Powell played left back, but <laughs> we we also there was one at Pride Park. And the Macedonia one, which they allude to in the commentary, and that's why Seaman doesn't start the game. David James does. He's trialling around with the new successor. I think it's Macedonia at uh, St Mary's. And this is when oh. Seaman misses the corner, isn't it? And uh, and this yeah. is just the beginnings of his way out. So I think we were chatting on the text, weren't we, that it's pretty much England's best back four, but the tinkering with the keeper. And it's at the time when they're saying let's maybe think about moving Seaman along before it gets really, really bad. But for me personally, I don't think that it ever got any better and I don't think it's ever been as good since. But when you said that before about Seaman replacing him, because he was, at a time, maybe not a long time, but at a time, arguably the best keeper in the world. Mm. You could argue, you could put a case for him when he was in like the Arsenal's Invincibles. Yep. Probably wasn't. Just, but he was there or thereabouts. Well, it was a year after, so yeah, he's peaking. Yeah, so you could argue that some of these players here, again, over their careers, were arguably players that were in the top five to ten players in the world, certainly in their positions. Yeah. Right? But at this point in time now, after Seaman, and you've got James there, who were the keepers they could choose? No idea. Well, you, you, 
you'll see in the second half, Paul Robinson comes on, and what's interesting for me as a City fan is, um, at that time, he and Nicky Weaver have been vying it out in the under-21s. City right. get promoted, Weaver's the keeper, but I, I don't know with Weaver if he maybe picked up a bit of a boozing problem. Um, right. And in the end, with Leeds being so successful, um, just after the, the turn of the millennium, and Robinson being just so phenomenal in the goal, obviously he, he becomes yeah, the, he, the keeper of choice, doesn't he? Just reminded me, yeah, he was a good keeper, wasn't he, Paul Robinson? There's a lot of Leeds influence in this squad. I don't know if you've seen the team, but it, it starts James, Neville, Ferdinand, Campbell, Cole, so great back four, great back five, Beckham, obviously, uh, Lampard and Scholes in the middle, uh, and Dyer on the left, so we're, we're right in the thick of dealing with England's left-sided problem. Um, and James Beattie and Michael Owen up front, and we'll get on to talking about how the first half goes in a moment, but I, I, I never thought it would become so abundantly clear how much we missed Emil Heskey <laughs> until we see James Beattie in this game. Because he's, he's, yeah, he's James Beattie, you can't, you can't, can't hold the ball up. You can't run the channels. <laughs> I mean, it's it's unfair, I suppose, on one game and yeah, notoriously shit in friendlies most of the time. Um, especially as they'll change the they do they change the whole of the team round or most of it round in the second half. And Sven used to do that all the time. Yeah, to, to keep managers happy, which is fair enough in one sense. But yeah, yeah, there was nobody with Owen, was there? And that's what I mean. You, you, it's funny watching it now, looking at that player on the bench, Wayne Rooney. Yeah. And he, he's going to come into this team in a minute, like not just in this game. I don't know how he plays. I can't remember in this game. But in the next, certainly few years, but in the next year and a half, he has a phenomenal season and... And he gets injured in the Euros, which we could have. I don't think we'd have won it. I think we'd have still come unstuck in the final. But he was amazing in the Euros for just that raw. You know, like, he reminded me in that. The closest that I've ever watched when I watched in, in and again, he didn't he didn't spark straight away, but Gaza in the 1990s World the Finals. Yep. Probably played, because don't forget, again, Tournaments are like that. He probably played Gazel probably played well in that tournament for three games, but he ran them games yep. like Scruffland and was in the and that's what Rooney did in Scruff the, the neck, yeah. He just basically he came on and it was like everything went through him. Everything that was good, it was exciting, went through him. It was like holy shit, and he was scoring goals, but then he gets injured and then obviously he probably never plays that well again for England is that fair? Oh, I, I, maybe only because he hit such a dizzy height so early on and he, and he was fearless to begin with no doubt Let, let's... Yeah, I mean, he played tremendous for United he he played some fabulous games for United he was such a good player for us but for England because again when you're looking at this game and stuff how many games do England have in the season? Yeah, good question. I mean, with qualifiers and things, five or six. Yeah, so you could be injured for a couple. Yeah. Then you go to the World Cup. Like again, it's not in one sense. It's not Rooney's fault because I think before he got injured for the World Cup, we're going off, going off slightly here. But before he got injured for the World Cup in, I think it was two thousand and ten, where he was the talisman. 
he was having a cracking season for United. Yeah. I remember him having such a great season for United and it was kind of like, if he carries this form into the World Cup and we get a decent team round him. We stand a chance. We stand a chance of getting far. You know, because if you look at World Cups, we talk about World Cups and stuff, particularly back then, it only took, not it only took, but if you had one great player in the side who hit form for a tournament, and then a decent team round him. It'd lift the team, definitely. Yeah, he'd yeah. a semi. Definitely. Well, let's have a look at the Australian team, because there's a few familiar names. So, Mark Schwarzer, Lucas Neal, Craig Moore, who played for Rangers. Yeah. Uh, Popovich, he, he opens the scoring. Stan Lazaridis, we're familiar with. Brett Emerton eventually came over. Ocon is the captain, a bit before Ocon my time. Is, yeah, I think he played for Coventry. Okay. Skoko, Chifferfield, who's, who's busy. And Viduka. He played, played in Germany, I think. Okay, okay. Viduka and uh, and Harry Kuehl. They've only got two on the bench. A keeper and uh, a player close to my heart, Danny Tiato. The City player. Sorry, two that don't get on the squad's a little bit bigger. I mean, I, and, I, and, I love, and I love Danny Tiato. But what's interesting <laughs> is someone else who's sat in the England dugout, because we mentioned Sven. It will be close to both of our arts as, as big United fans and big City fans. Uh, a bloke that played for both clubs has been yes. involved in the backroom yeah. staff of both clubs. And at the time, he's involved with the backroom staff uh, at Leeds United. So he should know and have the inside track on Harry Kuehl inside out. And that's obviously Brian Kidd, Kiddo, who is just you know one of City's and United's favourite sons. He's, he's played for both and he's one of the few that's passed across the divide uh, both as manager and player, that's pretty well revered by both clubs. But I look at him in his England setup and say, "You should have had Kuehl stitched up for us in the tactics, but we can't handle Kuehl." Well, uh, maybe I don't know. I don't know anything about coaching really. But like, you see that bench. He's only just come in, right? So that's maybe his excuse. And we're talking about coaches, not players. Yeah, which is funny. But you're right. He he has had. Before this game, he's had, what, 10 years with Beckham, Scholes, Neville. He's got the Leeds players there. Yep. Like, half of them. And, and even, like, Rio, you could argue, was yeah. in, if he was around when Rio was at Leeds, that might be unfair. But, yeah, he should know how to play. Apparently, Kuehl's got, he's just come back off a chest infection, an injury, a hamstring. And he runs and ragged. He didn't look, yeah, exactly. Like Rio looked like he was in second gear for most of that half, and then he had one thing to do against Kuehl. And he and I thought he got fouled because he picked up. Did you see? He noticed he got up and he's messed about with his shoe. Mm. He's it looked like somebody stood on it. I don't think when I looked at it again and played it three times, I thought, nah, he's just slipped over. Yeah, just I think Kuehl picks his pocket, doesn't he, for that second one? Yeah, you, so. do, do you think though because we're going back now 17 years plus since that game was played do you think that's the type of foul when you look at um, how Kuehl picks his pocket how Ferdinand goes to ground do, do, do you think even though it, it's not a foul and, and they point that out in the commentary do you think that's something that um, a forward would get away with today r roughing up a defender and picking the pocket that way you know the game's just so much more about keeping the ball and intercepting the ball now that's a really good question. Do you think that'll be a free kick the other way, or are we maybe being a bit too soft? 
you know, I suspect you get a free kick for it now. I suspect, I don't know if we always do this, but the defender would be, like, stay down. Mm. And because he'd know he'd probably get a free kick for it. Yeah. Like, we didn't make a fuss of it because he probably thought, fuck, I've just been slipped here. Like, look at the defender on the other side. How wonderful Gary. <laughs> he can't drop a bag of sand, can he? <laughs> and I thought, and again, looking at it and coming up and playing in that era, I was like, he got he got a free kick awarded against him after about three or four minutes for like a one-on-one foot race with, I think it was Lazaridis then. And he kind of, he was like this and like scrap, grappling a little bit with him. And the, keeper, the Spanish ref gave it to Lazaridis, like yep. blew it back and like, Neville's going, well, what did I do, what did I do? Because he actually got the ball eventually. Yep. And I thought, that's just, that's good tussling, good play. But nowadays, you never get away with it. It would always be a free kick. Because again, I reckon if you've got a winger up against you and you're doing that as a, as a pink centre-half, not centre-half, uh, right back, the, first of all, this day and age, if, if as soon as he sort of lost it, the winger would be down because he knows he's going to get away. He's going to get a free kick for that yeah, all the time. Definitely. But but now then that was a bit of a harsh free kick. I thought. Yeah. The one where he that's a free kick. <laughs> I mean, the the good thing that it's the good thing for me from a nostalgic point of view looking back is it, it, that was forty five minutes of. Uh, a winger and a fullback, maybe not going at it toe to toe, but it just gives you that taste of yeah. yesteryear when that used to happen. There'd be a couple of late tackles, there'd be a couple of intentional ones where you just go in a little bit harder just to let 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 the other player know that you're there. But I didn't see a great deal of Stan Lazaridis over the years, but I saw a little bit of him, maybe a bit more when he was at Birmingham and, and City were floating around the, the the lower leagues a little bit. But you know, he he he'd give as good as he can get, and he obviously doesn't mind doing that against you know Gary Neville, who probably at this point's well on his way to his. I don't know how many caps he picked up for England in the end, but he picked up picked up a lot, and um, I think that was just the thing with Neville. You know, sometimes he could be a little bit rash, but generally speaking, you knew you'd get a base level six out of ten from him. Um, you know, he's pretty serious competitor and operator that way, wasn't he? It's maybe why when we were talking about like what points did you see in that match, and obviously the goals are, can easily be analysed now. You sit there and you think, oh, they should have saved that. There's millions, millions of times as a right back, I would have let that in. <laughs> but yeah. he's supposed to be an international right back. But uh, to me, the reason it sort of stood out is because I don't remember Neville getting caught a lot at the back post like that because he was good positionally. For Popovich's header, the opener. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was good because he wasn't. He wasn't big. I mean, he played at centre half for United a few times. He did, yeah. He used to get caught a little bit, but positionally, he was actually really good, and he was good at his at his role for that. So I think I think that was what was good about him. He was he obviously had a great relationship with with uh, Beckham down that side. Yeah, and that all one-off, 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 because a lot of the time you see, especially in this game, because Neville, because Beckham goes, like you said, wandering inside to try and do something. Yep. Neville is literally playing right wing, mm. isn't he? He's right up, right up on, like, uh, the Australian 
18 yard line and a couple of times I thought, fuck it out. That's why his last, because where are his Beckham? And when you look at Beckham, Beckham is in like, like the inside left position. Yeah. And a little bit quarterback at times as well. And I think, I don't know if it's fair to say they underestimated Australia, but probably if you look at it from the other angle that, I think it mentions in the commentary, they'd not got together for 14 months. This 11 hadn't played together before. There are a couple of players they've got in the squad that you know maybe just happened to be in and around Europe and they drafted them in. Probably a sense of Australia playing with a bit more freedom and less to lose. And let's just get it up to Viduka and Kuhl and not you know Stoke City, lump it forward and see what happens. But if we can thread the ball through and get it into the feet, the touch is good enough to see if we can make something happen. And I think there's one moment Viduka turns it around the corner for Emerton uh, he squares it in and the, the lad Chipper Field who had not come across before. Yeah, and that should have been 2-0. Um, probably if Viduka was back on the end of the, the move, it, it would have been. But vintage Viduka just dropping into the hole and it just causes problems. Great bit of play, that. Yeah, you're right. It was a great bit of play. Played up to him. It just, like you said, he dropped in, played it up to him. He spun it and knocked it straight on to Emerton. And it was like Emerton just had to look up, which he did, and deliver a decent ball in. And actually, Neville, I thought Neville got caught at first, but then I looked and I was like, no, he didn't. He actually got his foot to it. He does. He comes across and he covers really well. It's actually a decent bit of defending, and I think that's to your point about him being positionally good. You know, he yeah. knew when the, the, the centre-backs might get sucked in. He knew when to go. He knew when the winger had made a run at the same time as well. He was, he was, he was pretty good at that mopping up stuff. Um, but when he does break forward, I don't know if you remember uh, the band DB Boulevard point of view. And the, uh, the video for it was cardboard. And uh, Gary Neville motoring down the wing, you'll have to Google it, always reminds me of um, always reminds me of that video. But we'll have a quick word on before we go off and watch the, uh, the second half. Um, yeah. This left-sided problem for England, uh, uh, we're obviously in the midst of that. And um, Dyer's probably not too busy. Skulls goes out there a little bit, which probably creates a little bit of a gap. And um, you can see how it becomes a problem for England the next couple of years, can't you? Yeah. Yeah, for me, it's effectively nothing on the left. And there's nothing on the right because Neville, uh, Neville, because he's getting frustrated and coming inside, I think. So there's, there's literally nothing in the midfield. Is that harsh? No, no, I think I think that's fair. And you probably got it this... does, there's no shape because there's nobody holding. Like, they're playing an old 4-4-2, so if you haven't... Like when you've got the ball, you go wide. Your wingers hug the touchline normally on a four-four-two. If you haven't got the ball, you come in, and they haven't got the ball. But then where is uh, where is Lampard? I keep missing where he is. I don't see him. Yeah, what he, position he playing? Lampard's a little bit like um, the kid in the playground at this point in time, and he's trying to cover every blade of grass uh, to go and pick the ball up and get on it and make an impression see how you've probably got that burden on your shoulders as as a, a newer and a younger international but they, they just don't have anybody sort of holding in the middle and you know beaties out the game a little bit and owen can't really run into the channel so you can start to see where the problems come through for the team and how yeah. they end up with the result that they end up with in the end but then that, that's an interesting point as well because if you haven't got like a natural left or right but you've got a decent target man hesky <laughs> yeah who also left a lot you can hold the ball up and then you can make the position up if you know what I mean 
three mm. under the ball up so the midfield can come up with it and it doesn't it doesn't look as obvious then that they're they're out of position. Yeah, indeed. But, uh, right, but well but now we're going to the youngsters did you hear them say it near half time yeah and the interesting thing is they were going to see that if you know maybe they were drawing or not performing too well they'd maybe hold the team to save embarrassment against the relative minnows of Australia but we've got wholesale changes coming up so maybe let's get into the second half and we'll uh, we'll pick it up back after that cool see you in a bit cheers mate half time wholesale changes and um yeah i think managers usually say in the dressing room when they're winning go out and uh, go out and win the second half or if you're losing you, you try and go out and win emphatically and come back the shares were spoiled in the second half and um yeah the changes had some positive impacts but um unsettling at the same time what did you make of the uh what did you make of the starting 11 for the second half lee uh i was amazed when I looked at the second half, I was like, because if you remember at the end of the first half, Tilsley was talking about the youngsters and the youngsters that are going to come off the bench and be able to change the game and have a go. And I was thinking, oh, what youngsters have we got? Because I can't remember, it's 20 odd years ago. And then I saw this lineup for the second half and I was like, I forgot that Wayne Rooney was young, the one. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that Owen Hargreaves was even about at that point. Because for me, Owen Hargreaves didn't appear in my lexicon of memory till about 2008, mm. which is when he was a United player, playing in that great side and getting to the 2008 um, well, uh, Champions League final. But three years. And he was really good. Three, oh, four years before this game, though, he's, he's played for Bayern Munich against United. So he's on the block, isn't he? Yeah. But and that was the other thing with with Owen Hargreaves, because he was he was that rare thing. He was a player who played outside of the Premier League mm. for a long time as a youngster. Mm. But I saw I watched him in this game because it was interesting. Thinking, oh, let's have a look what he's like. And I thought he was busy. Yeah, that was my in the second half. I thought he was busy. Yeah. Um, J Jermaine Jenis. It was interesting. And again, looking at Jermaine Jenis and uh, I think he had just come off, hadn't he? Um, Dyer. Yeah, and it made made me think of those Ipswich players at that time because they were all it was like a young crop of Ipswich players. Yeah, um, so it just it's funny watching a game like this. It reminds you, makes you think of these players and their careers and where they came from to be at this point. Would, yeah, would, but looking would, would at Gene, that, Genus have been at Newcastle at that time. Would he? Would he? I, I think, think they were. I think Bobby Robson signed for five was. million, which was big money yeah. for his age. Yeah. But then Bobby Robson signs you. So Jermaine Genus was one of those players that he could have been anything. And he was a good, classy player, but he never really, in in that sense, developed, I guess. Then you look at that back four, right? We were talking about it in the first half, Robinson, or we were talking about it before, about how good a keeper he was at the time yep. for Leeds. So good keeper, let's take that off. But Mills and Koncheski? Now, you might think differently, because... Danny Mills play for you, but I just looked and thought that's a terrible. Well, one thing I always <laughs> thought about Danny Mills was, as hard as he was, it showed you how hard Ben Thatcher was when he came over and smashed uh, Mendes. I think it was either for Spurs or Portsmouth. I can't remember and came all the way over from left back. I thought Danny Mills could have done that, disgusting as the tackle was. But at this point, Danny Mills is the mainstay right back in what's a decent lead side. 
Uh, he was the captain of the second half. Yeah, I, I, I also thought there's other experience in there. I mean, Danny Murphy's a pretty experienced player. He's he's fairly key for Liverpool at this time. He pops up with goals yep. at the right moments. He's disciplined. Um, you know, from what I've heard from other sort of documentaries I've watched with Murphy, he's, he's very much the calm man of the occasion. It's it's something that um, Sol Campbell has, has come out and said a couple of times. He's all, he's all, he's he has this view that if he wasn't black, he maybe would have been the England captain. You look at the centre backs there. King is sort of the the heir apparent to running the Spurs back line. Um, mm. And Wes Brown's also been on the block for a while as well. I think he was part of the Wes- treble winning squad, wasn't he? Even um, if he was Wes Brown. Wes Brown. At that point, he was young, right? And when he hit, like when he started appearing for United at that point. And it was interesting because did we have we were talking about Rio? Did we have Rio at that point, or was he at Leeds? I, I Had think he just come to United. Yeah, as Kuehl as Kuehl does him for the goal in the first half, I think Tilsley says um, former teammates. Yeah, so so Rio had just done these big moves to United, right? But Wes Brown was the heir apparent to Rio, mm. in my opinion, and he came on and he was young. He was really young at that point, but he was silky and he had lots and lots of potential. But then his career has been, again, he's been hampered by Rio. <laughs> yeah. Okay, you'll never get past him. And injuries. But he was a great player. But him and... So I look at that back four there, and I, whether you agree or not, I dismiss Konchesky and Mills. And I think, but Brown and Kiggy, what potential they had, and it never, it never fulfilled. Because, like you said, King was, was the next Sol Campbell. Injuries next. again, though. Yeah, yeah. And Brown was as good as as good a centre half as we had as a backup for Rio. Just sticking with it Brown for a moment, because an article came out this week, and it was Rashford talking about the influence that uh, Ibrahimovic had on him. Now mm. we're, we're twenty, almost twenty years on from this game, uh, twenty years on from from this era at least, and at that time the foreign players in the Premier League, the, the superstars that we'd had, we'd had sort of Burkamps, a lot of French players coming in after the success of the French team. Um, yep. We had Klinsmann. I'm, I'm sure these players and the Arsenal players always talk about, you know, these French players coming in, the diet being a bit better and the recovery being a bit better. United had a lot of British players. They actually didn't have that many foreign players mm. at the time. A few, but, but not many. Do you think Wes Brown today, you know, the way that Rashford seems to be flourishing with better sports science, recovery, and those sort of really continental, really professional top level players rubbing off on them. Do you think Brown today would 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 have a career that's going as far as or the potential that say Rashford has if he was playing today? With the talent he had, he had, every, he had everything in his locker. So the answer to that is yes. Yeah, good player. I met him once. Oh, we played. Yeah, him. I saw him once. He was leathered in a club. Quite the opposite. We played in the Manchester <laughs> Cup, and we we had a we were well out of our depth, and uh, this was on the the playing fields, just going all the way almost round to Carrington, just just beyond right. the Trafford Centre. We played in um, we got knocked out of our group bottom, and we were unlucky. We hit the woodwork a few times and a couple of offside decisions, the usual stuff. So on the Sunday, to make it worth what you paid to get in, we went into the plate, and uh, we lost the final in the plate. And Wes Brown showed up and he, he did the presentation and I had a signed captain's armband. And when I went and got myself a Saturday job, I gave that to someone else and I, I never got it back. I just expected when I returned, I'd get the armband back. The lad left in a huff and he kept my Wes Brown armband. And um, I think maybe you can confirm this for me. I think he's a City fan, isn't he? 
<gasps> I don't know. I don't ever want to know that. United's Jamie Carragher, you know, would be an Everton fan. Maybe he was, though, because he was a, he's a Manchester boy, isn't he? So maybe. Yeah, he's from that sort of side of town where Oasis are from, which is like Burnage. Yeah, like Burnage or something, isn't yeah. it? So anyway, that's the back he's, four with Paul Kanjewski. Um, yeah. Let's talk about the front two because Rooney and Jeffers, one of them's had the big move, one of them's looking on the cusp of, of having a big move. Um, and there's a lot of talk about Jeffers being, um, you know, sort of the, ne- the next best thing, but the game's all about Rooney's first cap, isn't it? Uh, well, it is. And, and when you said watch this game, I was like, why are we watching a, a, a game that actually we, we are getting beaten? And it's Australia. They weren't any great shakes, but this was actually a really entertaining game, and it was a and it was a friendly. But um, yeah, it, it basically comes down to Wayne Rooney's first game for England, doesn't it? And like I said, I just couldn't believe when I saw him at the start on the bench how young he was. Yeah, wasn't he like twelve or something <laughs> when he started playing for us? Yeah, he was. But he was a real symbol of that transition that was about to happen. In fact, I spotted this in uh, the Guardian before we get stuck into Rooney a bit more. So this was an article the day after. So the occasion made Ericsson's strategy look ridiculous, and he failed singularly to eradicate memories of the two-two draw with Macedonia. No way to prepare for the for the return of the two thousand and four qualifiers for the European Championships, and almost all of Ericsson's newcomers were kept in reserve for the second half. Um, evidence that the first half must have been so bad was that when it was announced that the whole team would be replaced the crowd roared happily at the interval when told um so i think we've got these new boys coming in looking at it with an opportunity maybe to impress but for me what what's a bit of an issue is is some of the older boys don't really live up to the bill and protect them we'll come on to um a good example of that with uh, the the third goal in a moment because that's a horror show but there's flashes with rooney in the first 10 minutes of doing what he went on to do for years, which was dropping in uh, into the hole, playing between the lines, chesting it with back to goal, switching play. And he's actually instrumental in a couple of a couple of moves that don't quite find the back of the net. I think Dar- Darius Vassell uh, should get on the back of one of them. Um, but he's um, he's busy. He, 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 yeah. And obviously he has a pretty decent England career thereafter, doesn't he? Uh, not bad. Yeah. I mean, I've, I saw something recently where he was... An article in the paper where he said, or he's admitted to, I think it was to uh, Neville, that he thought he should have scored more goals in his career. So this is a man who's got the goal-scoring record for Man United in England. Mm. And he, he thinks he should have scored more. Like, yeah. what? <laughs> but that's that's almost, a, a, in my opinion, a precursor to what you just said, how he played. He was a team player. And, and then some of the great United sides... I'm thinking about England, but in the great United side, he was actually weirdly the one that was sacrificed in position positionally because he could play along across the front line. So he could put him at left side of a front three or whatever it was, you know, to do the to do the leg work and keep the attacking right back under control. But mm. you knew that if you got him further up the field, it doesn't matter if he's left, right or mid he's that good that he'll create something for his teammates or he'll get you a goal mm. whereas whereas even with the great Ronaldo it was like certainly at United it was like there's two positions you could put Ronaldo in you could play him off the right I mean he could play on the left obviously but you could play him off the right as a right winger and you wouldn't expect him to do loads of tracking back and stuff or 
and he was developing this side of his game more and obviously went on to it, you could play him up front. So just leave Ronaldo up front and then hit you on the break devastatingly. Mm. But what I'm saying is Rooney, go back to Rooney there, Rooney was the best player of his generation. He was an amazing player and I think slightly underappreciated. Maybe it's because he's scouse. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, but I think said, he was. He? When he went back to Merseyside to play games, he always found it pretty nerve-wracking because yeah. um, you know some people call that Merseyside derby the friendly one. And obviously after Hillsborough, it really brought the city together. You know, yeah. you can put football aside when, you know, the city's under siege a little bit, as it has been from politicians in the past. You know, that's a whole different conversation to be had, uh, mm. as it has been just from, you know, wider society sometimes. Uh, and as it was in the case of, of obviously Hillsborough as well, um, I think he's always found that pretty tough. But at the end of the day, he's a scouse lad so. playing for a Manchester team, isn't he? And um I think what what he, what he did there after the career he had, when you compare it to Jeffers, and obviously not to take anything away from Jeffers, is um, he he's done a lot with a little, um, as a obviously a lot of talent, but you know in terms of you know where he's come from and what he's achieved, he's obviously done really really well, and um, you know we obviously then finally make uh, the Euros despite a couple of false starts in the qualifiers, and he he goes from um, fifteen months earlier being this sort of impish, fearless teenage boy uh, with absolutely nothing to lose because he doesn't have anything to lose. Uh, there's no, no pressure or expectation at this point to just grabbing that tournament by the scruff of the neck. you know. And um, there's a, another fairly uh, youngish, talented player that we come up against in that tournament that's uh, part of us obviously going out in Ronaldo and the, the, the two of them then eventually end up being teammates in a prolific partnership. But yeah, some of the footballs floating around at that time. But you look at the rest of this team and you go, okay, Danny Murphy, you know, good squad player, um, Hargreaves yep. blighted with injuries. But you look at the rest of the team, there's really only Robinson uh, that ends up being a mainstay out of this experiment, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because like, it's interesting, you say, look at the top two. Jeffers had just made his move and Jeffers was at that point, they were talking about him being, I remember him being like, the the answer to Arsenal's uh, right problem. Mm. So what I mean by that is when right went, they didn't have yep. Fox in the box. Yep. They called him, didn't they, Jeffers? They didn't have that player who could bang in 20 goals. And Jeffers, I think he'd had a really good season on the, for Everton, where he, he must have hit double figures. Yep. Um, and he was, but, but his goals were those in and around the box. He was a goal scorer. He reminded me, I think there was also mention of him being like a, because uh, um, he'd come from, it was Everton, but he'd come from that side of the water, he'd come from Liverpool, so there was talk of him being like a uh, an Ian Rush style player, or who uh, was other one, Fowler. There's a lot of players just before this era that were like that goal scorers I'm thinking like your Andy Coles when Andy Coles never got into the England side he, he came up against Shearer used to bang goals in for fun he was you know yeah. there was there was uh, Fowler used to bang goals in for fun he, he had about four or five other England players around him that in the Premier League went on to score you know we're in the top charts of scorers yeah like on the Premier League all time list so just named two there and Franny Jeffers was at that point, that next sort of, again, we talk about air apparent, but I think he was that next 
he's going to be like that for England. Yeah. It just, nev- it just never happened. After that Arsenal lose, it never happened. It never clicked for him. We, we, he was an hometown boy, probably. Yeah, and with, with Shearer gone as well, they're obviously trying to leverage Owen as much as they can. So they, they're experimenting BT as a backup to Heskey and playing a player like Jeffers maybe changes the whole way that the team plays. Rooney mm. comes onto the scene and he's just a level above and you, you have to go, OK, we've got to find a way to get this, this player into the team. But you look at Jeffers going to Arsenal and heading into sort of this more French passing style of football, keeping the ball on the ground um, with a very solid English back four. It, it, it's not to say Jeffers couldn't have been unsuccessful there, but it, it just looks like Arsenal going in diverging directions. You know, uh, eventually they obviously end up with um, Henri, and it's just a totally different style of football to what they would have tried to accomplish through Jeffers. And of course, it works out very well. The, the following year, they go, they, they win the league unbeaten. Um, I, I guess it just wasn't mm. to be for him. But he does, he does pull one back for England, and it is a, it is a really nice move in the end. I think it might even be Rooney that starts yeah. it, possibly Vassell. Um, the balling from Genus is good, and it's a lovely deft header at the front post, isn't it? Genus's cross is great. Yep. Jesus' cross is Beckham-esque. Yes. <laughs> you don't see Beckham do that once in the first half. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, where is I, it? <laughs> I, I, and I do think for the first half of the second half, England are looking more creative. They're unsettling and they're moving Australia out of position a little bit more. And For the first half, I think we talked about this um, in the first part, where they, they've got nothing to lose and they decide... We're just going to defend for our lives. If we play with pride, you know, it should carry us through, and uh, hopefully, and it, it seems to work. They're not phased by the superstars. They just band together as, as, as Aussies do, as we've learned with us both being here, and they just get on with the job. In the second half after the break, they're playing against unknown quantities, players that they probably don't know as much about, players with a little less fear of the occasion and are just looking to make an impression. Um, but while they get one back, um, Australia managed to uh, restore the two-goal deficit in the end, and um, the defenders very, very, very questionable. Um, I mean, I'm watching this on a on on grainy TV, and I'm looking at that going. Paul Konchesky's left back, but the player tracking Emerton is wearing number twenty, and he's black. Yep. And I checked the yep. squad, and it's Darius Vassell. And uh, where's Konchesky? He's totally lost at sea. Um, so <laughs> when you're defending like that, you're not going to stand a chance, are you? No, no. It was a uh, yeah. It was a terrible. It was like they just quit, hadn't they? Because like you said, they were probably he he'd switched off. He'd gone from let's just throw the like kitchen sink of it. Yeah. And forgot that he's a defender. Yeah. <laughs> Where are you? <laughs> yeah, and it's it's a bit undisciplined, and um, you know the look on Ericsson's face is. Um, the mirror image of uh, some of those that Keegan would have worn back in his England career. And you think, here we go again, you know, are we going to really falter and stall for Euro 2004? But thankfully, they, uh, they get the train back on the tracks. Um, and sometimes you need these little wake-ups, don't you, to to obviously restore exactly. that. But I think, it, you know, to summarise, it's a little bit of an underestimation of, of, of the Aussie team. And during the second half, I was scrolling through Wikipedia and there's a few players there that, you know, playing in Italy there's obviously that migrant culture connection in Australia with the Italians you know so we yep. they go back and play sort of in the ancestral home uh, Craig Moore's playing at Rangers so he would have played in you know some tough old firm derbies Rangers are floating around Europe at the time there's a crowds. couple of them isn't there that playing in Scotland at that point and Scotland was actually a decent league and like you said it was tough the gap certainly wasn't as big as what it is today with the Premier yeah. League um, you know I always would have thought of it as 
you had those top leagues of the Premier League, the Serie A, La Liga, um, the Bundesliga. And then you probably have that next tier of maybe uh, Portugal, the Eredivisie. Um, and I'd probably put in and around, probably even League 1 at that time as well. It probably sits in mm. between. It certainly yeah, wasn't sort of a, one of the top four leagues. Right. You'd group SPL in that second batch, probably above the Norwegian League. Um, you know, or the or the Swedish league. Yeah. Um, but it's probably yeah. fair to say that's where it maybe sits today, isn't it? Mm, no, it sits well below that. <laughs> <laughs> and that'll take us on to a conversation about the A League another time as well. Yeah, well, let's hope we don't have any Scottish fans listening to us. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well, I guess that's Do they it. still play football up there? <laughs> Yeah, and it's obviously all sort of Celtic and Rangers driven still, isn't it? Well, exactly. I guess I, I guess that wraps us up for our first game. We've got a couple more to come, but yeah, I enjoyed that. That was a, a decent match to kick us off. Cool. Yeah, good good choice. Uh, the next one's better though. Yeah, indeed, it's a it's a classic, isn't it? And um, I can't wait it to is. get stuck into that. And uh, we've obviously got an extra guest joining us next time and uh, reminiscing where I was the day that United pulled off the miracle comeback uh, at White Hart Lane all those years ago. But that's for next time. So there it was. What a shambles, eh? So as Lee and I alluded to, we'll be back next week with Spurs 3, United 5, an eight-goal thriller from White Hart Lane. And Lee will be bringing another friend and colleague along too, Richard, we hope. Just going back to what I mentioned in the intro though, uh, it is a tough time for all of us right now in varying degrees and we probably all cope with that differently. Smaller stresses can impact others in bigger and deeper ways sometimes. Well, in the next few weeks, Lee was due to take on a big walk to raise money for mental health charity Beyond Blue. Obviously due to social distancing, it's off as it stands and it's likely to remain off. So as a thanks to Lee, I'm going to be donating the price of a few pints that's at the Australian rate, which I can assure you is a bit more expensive than the English rate, to uh, to the Beyond Blue charity. Um, they're a top organisation and obviously do great work and probably need a little bit of extra support in times like this as well. Anyway, just to sort of wrap up with a couple of credits, this podcast was recorded at home in Elwood, Melbourne, and that's on the traditional lands of the Boone Wurrung people whom we should and I do pay my respects to. And the music in the credits uh, and the intro as well was a free sample from Kevin McLeod. This has been the Working Man's Football Club. Join us again next time. Thanks a lot.